مرکز صحابہ آن لائن ریڈیو پوڈ السلام علیکم اینڈ ویلکم ٹو آور برینڈ نیو شو ٹیکنالوجی واچ ان دس شو وی گوئنگ ٹو بی ٹاکنگ اباؤٹ دا لیٹسٹ ٹرینڈز ان ٹیکنالوجی اینڈ ہاؤ اٹ افیکٹس اس آئی ایم بلال کترادا اینڈ آئی مسی and we're going to keep you in the loop about what's happening in the world of technology in this week's episode we're going to talk about a man called Ted Dabney now the name probably doesn't ring a bell to most people but Ted Dabney was actually one of the pioneers of technology he died last year at the age of 81 and for those that don't know who he is he's known as the father of modern video games now ted dabney was a mechanical engineer and one of the things he found in his times around about the late 60s early 70s was that computers were really really expensive i mean a typical computer cost in the region of about couple of hundred thousand us dollars now ted wanted to create a simple computing device on which people could play video games he saw the potential of video games so what he did was he decided to put together a few old television parts he converted his daughter's bedroom into a makeshift lab and he set out to develop a low cost gaming machine that was so affordable that any home could afford it he eventually succeeded he created this little console that looked nothing more than just a few pieces of circuit boards connected by wires what he did next was he packaged everything in into a plywood box and covered that plywood with uh, some kind of uh, a wooden veneer to make it look attractive he programmed the first game and this was the first ever commercially available video game in history this uh, game was actually called space challenge and he joined forces with a business partner and they decided to launch a new company to sell those devices that company was called atari the first game that they created was not a commercial success it was actually a flop but then they went on to create a new game which they called pong and that game became a global sensation i actually remember playing that game with my dad in the early 80s in our little flat my dad rented a little atari system and we used to have hours playing that game so what was what was pong the, the, what was the game the game resembled uh, a game of tennis where there's two players on either side of the field and they need to keep the ball between them except that in the game pong it was so simple remember this is the first ever gaming console ever created it was so simple the the players on either side were just little little lines on the screen one on the extreme left and one on the extreme right and the ball was nothing more than a dot and the ball bounced between the two sides and all you had to do was use the controller joystick to block the ball and hit it towards your opponent and obviously the one that didn't reach the ball in time and uh, the ball went past his edge of the screen then that person was the loser now this was a momentous occasion in computing because this was the foundations of the computer gaming industry like it or not the computer gaming industry is worth tens of billions of dollars currently but the start 
and the pioneer was this man Ted Dabney and through his desire to create something that is reachable and accessible and helpful to people he created the first device and not just that but he went on to become one of the co-founders of Atari which went on to become one of the most successful computing companies in the world they went on to make not just gaming devices but also computers now most of us haven't heard of Ted Dabney in the same way there are a lot of people out there there've been a lot of people in history who've developed things who've discovered things that went a long way towards giving us the lifestyle that we have currently the technology that we rely on the very fact that i can talk to you i can reach you no matter where you are on the globe this is one of the miracles of technology so in the same way there were countless people in history who through their contributions we are living the lifestyle that we have we have this technology we are enjoying the comforts we are enjoying the benefits that this technology gives us now one of my favorite people in history who who had a direct bearing on the modern technological world is a man by the name of Muhammad ibn Musa al-Kharizmi now this was an amazing person i'm not going to get into his bio that Masi will do for us but al-Kharizmi was probably the person most responsible for modern computing yet he lived over 1200 years ago so Masi tell us about al-Kharizmi a truly truly amazing individual um al-Kharizmi was and um researching him i i didn't realize what an important role he played in in my life as a as a coder uh there is so much that that we um owe to him so his full name was muhammad ibn musa al-kharizmi we know him better as al-kharizmi he was a persian scholar born in the golden age of islam somewhere between the year 780 and he passed away in the year 850 his contributions um were massive um it was not just a mathematician he had major contributions in geography astronomy and cartography um and in his contributions back then established the basis for innovation in algebra and trigonometry he's widely considered as the father of algebra and in fact the word algebra is derived from the word aljabar um it was one of the two systems that he used to solve quadratic equations uh his book was the compendious book on calculations by completion and balancing and um it's not just uh, mathematicians or programmers that that recognize him in the year 1983 the soviet union issued a stamp to commemorate al-kharizmi's 1200 birthday 1200 years ago and this was the guy then had one of the most direct bearings on the modern computing world i mean think about it besides his book i think the the full name was uh, al-jabr wal-muqabala and uh, from the word al-jabr came the word algebra but what's even more remarkable is that the word algorithm actually came from his name al-kharizmi so the latinized version of al-kharizmi is algorithmi and from that came the word algorithm so he 
developed the concept of an algorithm. Now, if you look at every single computer program in the world, it's an algorithm. Every single mathematical calculation in the world, every scientific calculation in the world, whether it's your kids at school, at primary and high school, or it's your computer programmers, or it's your world-class scientists sitting in CERN, in uh, the, the particle accelerator in, New Z in Switzerland, and doing the calculations, all these people are using algorithms to use to do their calculations. And these algorithms were developed by Al-Kharizmi over 1,200 years ago. And that's impressive. Now, for those that don't understand what the concept of an algorithm is, an algorithm in its very simplest form is a set of instructions to solve a specific problems, a specific problem. So every time you use certain inputs, you will always get the same output. Think of a recipe. A recipe is a kind of algorithm. You get a recipe for crumpets. As long as you follow that recipe to the T with the same ingredients and the same method, you're always going to get crumpets. You're never going to get cupcakes or muffins by using that recipe. So the results are not random. The results are predictable and the results are uniform and consistent. Now, in the mathematical world, if I asked you a question, and most of us will answer this question easily, how do you calculate the area of a room? Even a primary school kid will tell us that you calculate the area using the formula. Area is equal to length times breadth. Now, we know this because we've been taught this from primary school days, but what we don't know is that this is thanks to Al-Kharizmi. It's because of him that we have formulae like this, that we can simply plug in values and do calculations. In his time, there was no such thing. So whether it was business calculations or inheritance, we know the laws of Islamic inheritance are quite intricate. So these were very difficult for people to actually calculate and arrive at correct and consistent answers. So Al-Kharizmi saw the challenge that people were facing and decided to formulate a simple way for people to do these calculations. So we end up with algorithms. Do you need to calculate the area of a room? Use this formula. You need to calculate the radius of a circle or the area of a circle. Use that formula. In the same way, he transformed not only his own time, he not only transformed the mathematic and scientific world of his own time, but he didn't realize that there will be someday these things called computers that are going to rely heavily on what he has achieved, on what he discovered on these algorithms. So computer programs themselves are algorithms and are able to operate thanks to his contribution to mathematics and science. Okay, so tell me this, right? Al-Kharizmi laid the foundations for modern algorithms. But when did the first computers come about? The first computer was actually invented in the 19th century by a, an English mathematician and engineer by the name of Charles Babbage. Now, he created an automatic way to calculate complex algorithms, leading to the design of what he called the analytical engine. So being a computer, obviously, or maybe not so obviously, it needed a programmer, right? Who would program Charles Babbage's computer? Um, 
That distinction will go to an another English mathematician by the name of Ada Lovelace. She created the first computer program ever. And that was the program that would run on Charles Babbage's analy- analytical engine. Correct. Wow, that's amazing. So she was essentially the first computer programmer in history. That's right. Amazing. Quite quite a, a an achievement. Now, when you look at the work that everybody from Al-Kharizmi's time through Charles Babbage, Ada Lovelace, they laid the foundations. And from there, technology just progressed and progressed and progressed. There's no time to actually get into how much, you know, all the steps that took place during the uh, the prog- progression of technology and from Al-Kharizmi's basic algorithms through Charles Babbage's analytical engine to the little analytical engines that are in our pockets right now, our cell phones, because essentially that's what they are, they're little computers in our pockets. So there's been so much of progress that took place and it's been a phenomenal journey. If you read about it, if you listen to it, you understand it, you'll see that it it was a crazy amazing journey but the one thing that stands out in that entire journey of computing history was that it was driven by people who wanted to make life better for other human beings from al-kharizmi's time what was his objective his objective was to make it easy for people whether it's business people or those that were calculating inheritance or children at school or scientists he just wanted to make it easier for them to be able to calculate. He felt their pain and he decided to go and solve it in the way he knew best. Charles Babbage did the same thing. Ada Lovelace did the same thing. And the scientists and engineers that followed did the same thing. So it's this indomitable human spirit. It's the spirit of making the world a better place for fellow human beings that actually made them or led them towards these amazing discoveries that uh, uh, went on to drive the world of technology. Now, looking at these amazing examples from Ted Dabney through Al-Kharizmi, Charles Babbage, Ada Lovelace, what do we learn? You know, in today's technologically driven age when people are concerned what the future is going to look like, People want to know and people often ask me, what are our children going to study? Because just about every field is being affected by technology. There's jobs that existed 15 to 20 years ago that don't exist anymore thanks to technology. Computers, in information technology, these are taking over jobs. So people are generally concerned, what do we do to prepare ourselves for the future and what do we do to prepare our kids for the future, especially at this time of the year? when kids are choosing their university degrees and their university qualifications. My advice to anybody and everybody that asks me the same question is study technology. Technology is the currency of our age. No matter what your passion is and what field you'll get into, you're going to use technology at some stage or the other in your field, whether it's business, accounting, agriculture, science, no matter what, you name it, and technology is a part of it. Take medical uh, technology, for example. Some of the biggest strides in modern technology are taking place in the medical world, which we'll discuss in a future episode. But technology is there. It's everywhere. It's The word they use is ubiquitous. It's 
it's pretty much in every qualification. That's the first thing. The second thing is when our kids, when we or our kids are choosing a qualification, are choosing a path to follow, to study, we need to keep something in mind. Don't worry about the money. The money will come. Focus on something you're passionate about. Ask yourself this question, in what way do I want to change the world? In what way do I want to benefit mankind and make the world a better place? Now, that's a firm ground to start on. When you start off with that, then you'll simply be following your passion. And no matter what challenges you face, no matter what difficulties you face, you'll always find pleasure in in your work. So if you want to benefit mankind by healing the sick, for example, then obviously the medical field is something to to get into. If you want to benefit mankind by educating people, then something in, in teaching. So you start off with yourself. What contribution do I want to make to mankind? And that's what these people of the past, the great people of the past actually started off with. What contribution do I want to make to the world? What problems am I seeing that I could solve as a human being? And that's what helped them to achieve greatness. That's what propelled them to greatness. Whereas there were countless other people that lived in their times that we never heard of and never will hear of. Maybe there were people much wealthier than them. But these people are not worthy of mention in history because they never contributed to mankind in any way. But you take a person like Al-Kharizmi, I mean, if they celebrated his 1,200th birthday by uh, stamps, that says something, that 1,200 years later, people still remember this man. We are talking about him in this podcast, a podcast that was made possible by his contribution to the maths and science world, a podcast using technology that he could not have dreamt of in his time. But he started out on this footing. How do I make the world a better place? And this is where we need to focus. We shouldn't focus so much on the money. If you're passionate and you're good at what you do, the money will come. And that's a wrap for today's episode. I hope that our listeners actually enjoyed it and learned something. Catch us for the next episode. And once again, thanks for listening. I'm Bilal Katrada. And I'm Ashila Katrada. And we hope to catch up with you soon. Marcus Sahaba Online Radio Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And welcome to a new episode of Technology Watch. Now, in the last episode, we spoke about technology and children. And I think we established the, in that episode that in today's day and age, in this technologically driven age, in this digital age that we are living in, it's impossible to keep technology away from children and children away from technology. It's not just impossible, but it's also unintuitive. It's not in the children's best interest to keep them completely in the dark as far as technology goes. And there's a number of reasons. One of the reasons that we explored was in the world of work. No matter what business you're in, no matter what profession you're in, in some way or the other, technology is affecting your work. And even if you're not using technology at work, you're using technology just about everywhere else. I mean, just think about it just a few years ago, It was impossible to think that you could book a flight on your phone. But yet today you can book the flight, you can pay for the flight. When you arrive at the airport, you don't need a ticket, you don't need even a boarding pass. You simply scan the barcode off your screen 
into the little barcode scanners and you go in, you flash your screen to the the officials, both in the airport as well as inside the plane, and you're flying to any part of the world. That's how technology is has progressed. Now, in, in this day and age, if again, if it's not in your professional life, in your personal life, technology has become integral. It's become part and parcel. So how can we ever do without it? Now, when it comes to kids in particular, we need to, we need to prepare them for the future, whether it's work or personal, or whether they're using it for disseminating knowledge, whether they're using it for inviting people towards good, they need to find opportunities in technology. But having said that, I do admit that there are some negative aspects. There is firstly the outright evil that's going on on the internet. There's a whole host of absolutely uh, haram things that are going on. But at the same time, there's a whole lot of things that are not outright haram, that are not outright evil, but because of overindulgence, they may cause harm to the kids. For example, sending a WhatsApp message, there's nothing wrong with that. Using WhatsApp is nothing wrong. But if you spend hours upon hours and upon hours of constructive time just wasted on WhatsApp, then that becomes in its own right something something bad because it's keeping you away from constructive work that you could have used or constructive a time that you could have used doing constructive work. Now, in that sense, things that are otherwise good become negative. Overindulgence, a, uh, an obsessive nature, um, uh, you know, getting addicted to technology, that's bad. That's terrible. And the worst part about that is that it goes largely unnoticed because people don't see it as being outright evil or outright bad or outright dirty or outright haram. It's, it's something normal, but people become addicted to it and their time goes away. And then they start experimenting with all sorts of wrong things when it comes to even the good aspects of technology. Okay, so what do we do? What is the solution? How do we draw the line between kids not using technology at all, between keeping them in the dark, and kids being allowed to use technology, but being allowed to use it responsibly? Where do we draw the line? What solution is there for parents? Because I speak to countless parents who have the exact same dilemma, and they ask me the same question over and over. How much time is enough with Technology. Should I let my child use technology or not? And if I do, how much time? Now, the solution lies in a partnership between the parents and the schools. Parents, schools, community. We work together as a team, as a partnership to keep our children in the loop, to educate them about what's the best out of technology, what's the good, what's the evil, and how do you make the most of what's good out there and how do you stay away from from evil. Now, it has to be a partnership and it's important, it's critical 
that schools embrace technology. There just isn't any other way because no one is in a better position to guide both children and parents as to how technology uh, needs to be used. And schools have yet another advantage. They can use technology directly in education. They can show the kids firsthand, this is how it's done. This is how you use technology to educate yourself. So if schools learn to adopt technology and apply it in the classroom, that's a first-hand cue for children that technology can be used for good. Maybe kids just pass time with technology, just watching YouTube videos, playing video games, chatting social media, because they don't know of any constructive things that they could do with technology. And if this is made available to them in the classroom, if they are guided in the classroom, then they will see that they are things that we can do with technology that are constructive. Then comes the other aspect of it, from a child's perspective. Now, think about the life that a typical child faces nowadays. These children are human beings that are born into an age of technology. They don't know a life without cell phones and internet and video games and technology. They don't know a life without all this excitement, this flashes of color and and sound effects and uh, and 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 special screen effects for them that's what life is now in the in the words of uh, uh, sir ken robinson a famous uh, author and speaker in in the education field he says if you take the life of a normal child if you study the life of a normal any normal child you'll see there's so much of action so much of activity their brains are so fast thanks to technology now we take the same children from that highly hyper-stimulated environment and we put them in the classroom and expect them to sit there and pay attention to the teacher and to do, in his words, clerical work the whole day. And then when the kids fail to do this and when they become jumpy and they become bored and they become irritable, then we see we say they have ADHD. Trust me, most of the kids don't have ADHD. They just have hyper-stimulated brains that are looking for something to do that's engaging and exciting. They bored in class. And I'm not saying that any one, any given uh, teacher's class is boring. I used to be a teacher. I taught maths and physics up to a metric level. I taught even at university level. Kids these days, you think by the time they reach university age, they are now much more mature. It's not the case. You still need to engage them in the classroom somehow or the other. You still have to make it exciting for them. And what better way than to use technology? And I've used technology very successfully in, in most of my classes. In fact, some of my students would come back and say, you know, we did an entire degree just by watching YouTube videos. All the lessons were there. So I used to encourage my students to go and to study online, to look for resources online to educate themselves. So now the big question is, we know that schools have to be a part of the technology implementation in the life of of children. We know they have to be partners with parents to bring technology in its most positive ways into the lives of, of our kids, to teach them to use it uh, responsibly. But the question is, how do schools implement technology because most schools that i speak to and consult they themselves are not always in the loop about how to bring technology into the classroom some have tried some have failed 
Some don't even know where to start. So where does one actually start? Now let me tell you where not to start. There was an article that came out about two weeks ago that the government is now planning to overhaul the education system by incorporating technology. Now a person like myself, being an educational technologist, I was overjoyed because, I mean, here was the government talking about transforming education in this country. And I know one of the biggest problems we face in South Africa is education. We are in crisis mode as far as education goes. So I saw this as a, a, as a positive, but then my heart sank. As I read more and more of that article, my heart sank. What did I see? The government's idea of digital transformation in the classroom was just giving tablets to kids at schools. Now, the numbers are absolutely mind-boggling and the cost. And the only thing that popped in my head after reading this article was that this is a massive mistake. You don't just give people tablets and phones and gadgets and devices without a strategic plan. Otherwise, things are going to go haywire. In the best case scenario, those those uh, tablets will be just sitting in somebody's cupboard somewhere. And worst case scenario, these kids are going to use it for all kinds of wrong things. And in between all that, you're going to get situations where tablets are getting stolen or damaged or dropped or mislaid. And the end result will be nothing more than a massive mistake. Now, how many tablets is the government planning to roll out, Masila? What, what's, what sort of numbers are we looking at? So the planned rollout is to distribute these tablets to 23,000 schools across South Africa. Uh, and this will be targeting both primary and high school students. Um, to get a better understanding of the number, we can round off um, the number of students per school to about a thousand. That gives you 23 million learners. So 23 million learners across 23,000 schools. Have I got that right? Correct. That's correct. That means 23 million tablets. Now, keep in mind that a decent Android tablet, uh, we're talking not something as low as, 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 a, as a 600 Rand tablet. We're going to go a little bit higher something that can at least be used for learning to view textbooks. We're talking about 2,000 Rand for a decent tablet. I still think that's a bit on the cheap side, but I see where you're going with that. If you do the math, that brings the total cost of the tablet rollout to 46 billion rands. Wait, billion with a B. Billion with a B. That's amazing. 46 billion rands. Correct. And that is not even including the infrastructure that is just the tablet so we don't even talk about wi-fi we didn't talk about software we didn't talk about shipping none of that this is just the price of the tablets of course and then there's e-content e-textbooks that's correct and and the thing is that there's no mention of of any of that in the works um at this time now i would say that uh, adding that all in that number could easily double and uh, then we're looking at something, what, like 90 billion rands without a strategic plan as far as how these tablets are going to be actually used in the classroom. How is it going to be used to improve education? It's never going to do it on its own. Technology doesn't 
just make lives better. And this is what I keep saying to people. You don't buy the technology and then decide what to do with it. I mean, think about this, right? Consider this. No one in the world will go to a store, buy an expensive tablet PC, bring it home, and then decide, what am I going to do with this? You never buy anything with that intention. Oh, just because you happen to be driving by a takeaway, so you went in and you bought yourself a burger, you were not hungry, and now you're deciding, what am I going to do with this? That's insanity. What you will normally do is you'd first find a need. You're either hungry, then you go and buy something to eat, or you have a certain need at home or in your business, and then you'd go and buy a computer or a device that would fulfill that need. Now, these types of mistakes are not unheard of. Others have tried crazy things like this and they've made huge mistakes. One such uh, mistake took place in the most unlikely place, and that's in Los Angeles in the United States. So, Masila, tell us about that. What happened? What exactly happened there? In 2013, the Los Angeles Unified School District had a similar idea. They wanted to give a tablet to uh, they wanted to give an iPad to every student in LA. Now, they had a massive budget. They had massive partners, yet it still failed. They had a budget of $1.3 billion for equipment, software, and Wi-Fi upgrades. $1.3 billion is a lot of money. It is, but um, it's still cheaper than what the cost of the essay tablets will cost if they were converted to, to dollars. Um, if you convert 46 billion rands to dollars, it comes to about $3.3 billion. Um, and that's just our calculation for the tablets. Now, when the Los Angeles Unified School District set out of this plan, they had two massive partners on board with them. One was Pearson, which is one of the world's largest education publica publish, uh, publication companies. They, um, they had the job of creating the content for the tablets. They were going to create a curriculum and they were going to create an, an app for the teachers and the students to work with. And the second partnership was Apple, the world's biggest tech company. They were, of course, going to supply the tablets. Now, despite these giants on board, this still failed. There were many, many problems with this rollout. Uh, it was, at the end of the day, just a massive waste of money. And many critics who, who talked about this felt that the project was, A, too expensive, and B, that it was rushed. I, I agree. I think it was, it was rushed. And uh, not just that, but they also didn't have a strategic phase-by-phase -phase rollout plan. The best way to do anything is to roll it out gradually. That's actually one of the teachings of Sharia. Start small. In fact, it's a word, one of the, uh, the words of one of the hadith of Rasulullah that the best of actions is the one that's less and done consistently. So you start with a little, you do it consistently, and then you add more as you go along. So this uh, phenomenal uh, failure on the part of uh, the Los Angeles United School District, Apple and Pearson, I mean, giant partners, but it still failed. Again, no strategic plan. And based on experiences like this, I can say with certainty that if we don't step in and say to the government 
and say to our our departments of education that let's do this, but let's do this with a strategic plan in mind. Then we will see success. Otherwise, we're going to spend 46 billion rands or 90 billion rands or whatever. Look, between between where we are now and getting our kids to a point where they need to be as far as education is concerned, even if you have to spend $100 billion, it's cheap because the impact that it's going to have on our society and our, our economy over the next few decades is going to be phenomenal. We need to fix education, and we are with, uh, with the government as far as education goes, as far as fixing education goes, but it needs to be done strategically. So the question arises now, that what is a strategic approach? If, if I'm teaching at a school or if I'm running a school, how do I start with technology? Answer is very simple. Again, phase-by-phase phase approach. Phase one, start with what you, what you have on hand. Don't spend money on expensive gadgets, on expensive infrastructure let that come later when, when you've found your footing and when you're more confident. So start with what, with, with what you have. And today, especially if you're looking at a high school scenario, but also in a, in a primary school scenario, nearly everyone has a cell phone. Now we'd say, no, nah, but there are people in the disadvantaged areas that don't have cell phones. Trust me, I've done work in even rural schools, and you will be shocked that these kids have cell phones, smartphones, not just, uh, you know, uh, those old Nokia-type feature phones. They have smartphones. Why? Because smartphones are gone cheap, and you can buy it on account at, at, at any store. Four or five hundred rands, you're getting a decent entry-level Android phone. So these kids have those. Okay, so how do we start with that? We allow our kids to use, to bring the cell phone to school for one day, and we let them work with those. What sort of work? I'll give you an example. There is a teacher who's working with us now that is recording her lessons using audio. So she's an English teacher. She's recording her literacy lessons and she's reading from her books and doing explanations to those kids and she's sending those recordings to her kids' cell phones. She's recording using her cell phone and she's sending it to the, kid, to the kids via WhatsApp. See, that, that's a start. If your school has Wi-Fi, the teacher could say for that day, kids, we're going to make the lesson exciting today. Uh, we're going to watch this video. Obviously, the teacher is going to screen that video and make sure that it's, uh, it's appropriate for the kids and they watch that video. Next, after you've graduated from there and you're comfortable with that, you start a WhatsApp group. For example, now a lot of parents call me at, in the evenings or they WhatsApp me and they say, well, look, we, we're doing this multiplication sum or we're doing that example and we don't know how to do this. How nice if they could contact the, pair, the, the teacher. So the teacher could start a WhatsApp group and designate an hour every evening to say, uh, I'm open for questions and answers daily from 6 o'clock to 7 o'clock. If you have any questions, I'm taking your questions and I will answer. So parents and kids, while doing their homework, they can uh, contact the, the teacher via WhatsApp messaging. No phone calls, just WhatsApp messaging, and then the teacher could respond. Taking it another step up now. The next phase, if you can afford it, if your school can afford it, get a laptop and a projector. Now, you're not teaching using the whiteboard anymore. You're teaching using your 
projector. You're making little PowerPoint slides and you're teaching your kids via PowerPoint slides. Once the lesson is over, send the PowerPoint slides, convert them into PDF and send them off to your, your kids via WhatsApp, email or whatever means you have. And then they can make a compilation of those. And in this way, just starting off like this, you can graduate from one phase to another to another. There's no time to get into the details of it, but I run detailed presentations and workshops to to schools at no cost, just showing them how they can implement technology into uh, learning. So this is a wrap for today's episode. It's one of my passions personally to see kids using technology in a responsible way and growing up as adults, finding golden opportunities for business, for learning, for serving their, their, their dean using technology. And I think it can be done. I am confident it can be done, but they need guidance. And we as adults, as parents and teachers combined, we need to give them that guidance. All right, so that's a wrap uh, for today. And uh, we hope that our listeners enjoyed this episode and learned a lot from it. And we hope to catch up with you next time.